two weeks ago tonight, I made the announcement, I'm going to preach my sermon, I have to shorten it a little bit, I have to go to the youth service, nobody seemed to care about that. Came in here last Wednesday night, we had, now this is the truth, a hundred more people last week than we did the week before. We had 437 people here last Wednesday night, it's unbelievable, it's a great number. And I'm trying to figure out, how did we have that many more? And I'm afraid I know the answer. You know I can't preach long sermons anymore. And so you're showing up for the shorter ones. But anyway, we are glad that you're here at the end of a Wednesday. And, you know, Wednesday night worship is a special time. It's right in the middle of the week, and it's just kind of a pick-me-up and hopefully an encouragement to you and a, a refreshing time to you. And we'll just thank you for being here tonight, and we'll get the tally at the end of how many people are here. But anyway, if you'll open your Bibles tonight to the book of Psalms, and I want you to look with me in the 139th Psalm, which is one of my favorite psalms in all the Bible. And we're going to look at some good verses in this psalm in just a few minutes. I want to pick up tonight where I left off last Wednesday night and talk to you about being a good leader. Now, you may not think of yourself as a leader, but I can assure you that to somebody, you are a leader. If you have other people who live with you in your home, one way or another, you are leading them. If you have a job, even if you're not the boss or even very high up on the pecking order, somebody looks at you as a leader. Because you remember the way I defined a leader last Wednesday night is someone who has the ability to guide or to influence. And so leadership is not primarily a position. We think of a leader as the president of a company or a pastor of a church or a coach of a football team or a senator or a congressman or maybe a president. We say, now those are the leaders. Well, they, those people are in positions of leadership, and because of their position, they do have opportunities to influence others. But leadership is not primarily a position or a title. Leadership is more about one's character it is more about the type of person that you are. One of the things I said last week was simply this. We lead out of who we are. And so if I'm not right with God, if I'm not seeking to walk with God, if, I'm not, uh, if my attitude is not right, I'm not going to be a very effective leader. Because as I said last week, and I wish you'd write this in your outline just to refresh our memories, the first characteristic or the first key to being an effective leader is that you are a good follower. Leaders must be followers. In other words, in, in, in the world of Christianity, if you are going to influence others towards God, to use your influence, to invite people to church, to share Christ with them, to try to help them to do what is right, that begins with you following Jesus Christ. In other words, if I'm not endeavoring to follow Jesus... It would be blatant hypocrisy for me to stand up here before you and attempt to lead you. How can I lead you where I'm not willing to go? How can I lead you where I've never been? How can I lead you in a path or in a direction that I myself am not trying to walk? Now, as I said last week, made a big deal out of it last week. I'll take lesser time on it tonight. That doesn't mean that to be a leader, you have to be perfect or you have to feel like you have it all together. None of us are perfect, but it does mean that you have to be authentic. You have to be real. You can't be trying to pull the wool over people's eyes. You have to be open, even with failures and sins and 
And just to have, doesn't mean you have to confess every sin you've commit, but it means you have to let the people that you're seeking to influence know that you know that you yourself are not perfect. You are a forgiven sinner leading other sinners to Jesus. I'm very much aware of this when I preach. I am a forgiven sinner who still sins more than I wish I did. And yet, one of the things God has called me to do is to help others in their relationship with God. And so, don't think of a leader as somebody up here who's got it all together. That's how the devil would have you to view leadership. Because if he can get you thinking that, you'll never try to influence anybody. Because you'll think, well, I can't do that because, after all, I'm not perfect myself. If perfection were a requirement of leadership, no human uh, could be a leader. Only God could lead, only Jesus. But he lets us lead if we are seeking to follow him. Does that make sense? Say amen. Now the second prerequisite or the second requirement for being an effective leader, and I think this is so very important, and this is the new material, is simply this. You must learn to accept yourself. You must learn to accept yourself. I've been reading for the last few weeks a book by R.T. Kendall, we have this book in our bookstore, or if we're out now, they, they can order you more if you'd like, the, if you don't have this particular book. But it's called Forgiving Ourselves Totally. And I had heard him preach on the subject, but I hadn't read the book, and I thought, well, I'm going to read what, what, his, what does he mean by forgiving ourselves? And at the beginning of the book, he defines that by the phrase forgiving ourselves, what he means by that is that we so accept the forgiveness of God that we no longer beat ourselves up for things that we have done wrong in the past. So that's how he defines forgiving yourself. Forgiving yourself is, like for me, forgiving myself is not going home tonight and getting in my closet and saying, okay, John, on the count of three, I forgive myself. One, two, three. Well, I don't have any, what do I forgive myself with? I don't have any authority to forgive myself. The, the, the way he uses that term, we forgive ourselves, that means we so accept God's forgiveness, Christ's blood over our sins, we so accept that that we refuse to continue to punish ourselves or to beat ourselves up over something that Jesus has forgiven us of. It's an incredibly insightful book. The whole idea behind it is, if God has forgiven you, and if God has forgiven me of everything we've done wrong, and it's out of God's mind, and it's out of His book, and God's, it's not an issue with God. If we make it an issue with ourselves, Dr. Kendall would say, you've not forgiven yourself. You've not let yourself go for something that God's no longer holding against you. So it's been a really good read. Well, I'm coming to the end of the book, and I'm on I just finished chapter 8. There's a 10-chapter book. And the title of chapter 8 was Accepting Ourselves. And I thought, well, that's going to be interesting. He's been talking about forgiving ourselves by accepting God's forgiveness. I wonder what he means by accepting ourselves. And he did a better job in chapter 8 than I'm going to be able to do in this sermon tonight. But some of the, in fact, most all these points came right out of his book. But some of the illustrations and stories I have are certainly be my own. But what he's saying is most people don't accept themselves. Most people don't like themselves. Uh, when I preach this in an hour from now to those high school students, this is a very relevant thing for teenagers. 
they don't like, especially teenage girls, they're very self-conscious. They don't like maybe their appearance or they don't feel like they're as popular as someone else. But even the guys, they don't feel like they're as athletic or there's something about themselves that they don't like. But I don't think it's just true for students. I think it's, it plagues people all the way through their lives is that this whole idea, I wish that I looked differently. I wish I sounded differently. Every time I listen to myself preach, and I very seldom do it. I should do it more. I would preach better if I would evaluate my own preaching. But the reason I don't do it much is because when I turn myself, uh, turn the program on there and, and watch it or listen on the, uh, just to even the audio, I can only take about 30 seconds of my voice. <laughs> and some of you are thinking, well, John, we've been having this problem for a long time. I mean, this, this is new to you, but I mean, hey, we've been living with this for a long I have finally gotten to the point where I can watch a video of myself preaching as long as I turn the audio down. I'm telling, I'm that, that's just, I'm just being honest with you. I, I think to myself, do I really sound like that? You know, and, and y'all are thinking, yes, you do. So, but I think people are like that. I think most people wish there was something that they could change about themselves. And so and Dr. Kendall does an excellent job talking about accepting ourselves. Now, look in Psalm 139 in verse 13. David is talking about how God had made him, and David said, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. And skillfully wrought in the lowest places of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they were all written. The days fashioned for me. When as yet none of them were. And so David was saying God made him exactly like he was. <laughs> and the application for us is the same. When I look in the mirror, whether I like it or not, I have to remind myself... God made me like that. When I listen to myself, I have to, not that I can't improve, we can all improve, but I have to remind myself, God gave me my voice. And so God made us like we are. And what Dr. Kendall is saying, we have to, we have to learn to accept ourselves. Now you say, how does this relate to leadership? Well, that's what, see, Kendall's book was not about leadership, it's about accepting yourself, self-esteem. But in relation to leadership, if a person doesn't feel good about him or herself, how is he going to ever influence others? In other words, if a, now we all have hang-ups. I'm sharing some of mine tonight. But I mean, if a person is just so insecure and so self-conscious and so, oh, I wish this were different and this were different and I could never measure up, what does that do? The first thing that does, it depresses that person. And if you're a downer, you, you can't lead, at least you can't effectively lead if you are habitually and chronically down. In other words, you're always negative, it's, you know, the cup is always half full. I think people, when they look to leaders, want somebody who is positive, who not a fake positive, not a phone, but who genuinely believes, hey, God is in control, there's, a pos there, there's something positive even in negative situations, but if you're not comfortable in your own skin with who you are, you'll never be an effective leader. And so we have to learn to be 
comfortable with who God made us. And yet many people go through their entire lifetimes trying to reinvent themselves or re-portray them or, or, or remake them, you know, so that they can hopefully measure up. They're trying to cope. Instead of just accepting, this is how I look. Doesn't mean we can't improve. Doesn't mean we can't lose weight. Doesn't mean we can't become more healthy. But it means in the broader sense of the term, this is just how I look. And I have to do the best with what I have. I do the best I can with what I have. And I'm okay with that. You know, when I was in the, I just finished my fifth grade year. We lived in Tennessee, and my dad accepted a church in East Texas. And so, in, right when I finished my fifth grade year, our family moved from Tennessee to Texas. Well, if you can go back in your mind to your sixth grade year, I can't speak for you, but I can say for me, that's an awkward time. That's a tough time. And that was my year of rebellion. I have to be honest with you. When I was in the sixth grade, I was a rebellious little fellow. And uh, I was listening to music that, uh, now that t- by today's standards, would probably almost be church music. <laughs> but in 1984, 80, whatever year that was, 81, those songs that I were listening to, was, they were not, it was not good music. And I developed a little attitude when I was in the sixth grade. And I began to think I was tougher than everybody else. I remember one night, my dad came in my room. I was listening to some music too loud. And he came in there and he told me to turn that music down. And all this testosterone and everything going in me. And I bowed up on my dad and challenged him. And I said, this is my room. And uh, he said, it may be, but your room's in my house. (laughs) And I I won't bore you with the rest of that story, but let me just fast forward... (laughs) I never bowed up on him again. I can tell you that. One time bowing like that against him. And that was, the music was down and I was beginning to get on the road of repentance and straightening my life. But even before that episode one night, it was one of the first weeks of school starting in sixth grade. Now I'm in sixth grade. I'm about 12 years old, 13 years old. And didn't know anybody. And was not even happy that our family had moved. My friends were in Tennessee. And so if you've moved, you know it's hard at first. You feel like you've betrayed your old people. And now, you know, these these new people. And you don't even know them. Well, I felt like, now this was just crazy thinking. But I started trying to figure out a way that I could become popular in my school. In my middle school. They called it middle school there instead of junior high. And so... I dreamed up this idea, because I was wanting to be Mr. Tough Guy, that if I could figure out who the toughest guy was in the school and challenge him to a fight, I'm telling you, I was a little rebel in sixth grade. (laughs) Now, I got this. I did all right in high school, but in even seventh and eighth, I was pretty good. But in sixth grade, I was was a bad. And, uh, And if I could give him a good whooping in front of the whole sixth grade class, that I would have everybody's respect. And so I figured out pretty quickly that Russell Wright, a guy named Russell Wright, was the, he, was the, he was the man in sixth grade. And I thought, well, what I have to do is I have to get under his skin and I have to challenge him to a fight. And I wanted to do it when the whole, student, when the whole sixth grade would be there, which the only time I could do it was at lunchtime because all the sixth grade had lunch together. And so one morning in music, I walked up to Russell and kind of pushed him or said something to him and he looked back and pushed me. And I said, uh, well, I think what we should do, (laughs) I said, I think we should settle this today after lunch 
by the tetherball courts. Now, do y'all remember the tether, tetherball courts? That was entertainment in East Texas. You hit the ball around and around. And he said, I'll see you after lunch or during lunch at the tetherball courts. And so that, that was about 10 in the morning when I had picked this fight. Lunch was around noon. And so I'm telling you, those next two hours, I was nervous. And I was trying to think, now, what am I going to do when we get out there? So I went with, I didn't have many friends, maybe one or two. And we ate lunch together. And by then, the word had gotten around, hey, Russell Wright, the, the new guys picked a fight with Russell Wright. Let's all go watch this massacre. <laughs> and so we all finished eating lunch, and me and my one or two friends walked to the tetherball courts, and he walked basically with the whole sixth grade class, because they were all, <laughs> I mean, that was like me versus him. And uh, well, we got out there, and here he stood where those flowers are, except he was about up here on me. And here I stood... And, uh, and, and, and I, did, I, I remember I did something about like this. And then it dawned on me, I didn't know how to fight. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. I had talked a good game. I had orchestrated the whole sixth grade. We're all around the tetherball courts. And so uh, I, had, I knew that to fight, you had to start swinging. And so, you know, we just started going in. Well, I may have gotten one or two halfway decent punches in on Russell. And he just teed off on me. I remember I had braces, and he hit me, and the blood started coming down my cheek. Now, if I tell you all the most embarrassing thing I've ever done, you promise not to hold it against me, right? You didn't promise. <laughs> he was whipping me bad. And I mean just bad. He had me down on the ground, and he was just tearing into me. He didn't know how to fight, and I didn't. And uh, I remember saying to him, Okay, I said, Russell, I give, I give, I give up, you win. Which, I, you know, a boy should never say that. you got to fight to the death. And I, was, I just gave up. Well, when I gave up, he got up off me, and he turned around, and he started doing this and going back to all his cheering style. Now, here's the most embarrassing thing I ever did. When he turned around and walked off from me, I got up off the ground and attacked him from behind. <laughs> and I got one or two good hits in, and then he did it to me again and put me right down on the ground. Well, at, then eventually, the fight got broken up. What, what really wasn't a fight. It was a, it was a one-sided slaying is what it was. And I got taken to the principal's office. Mr. Reed was the vice principal, and he gave me a talking to, and he gave me a whipping. And then I remember I had to go back to my social social not social security, social <laughs> At that age, I didn't know if I would ever live to get social security. Back to my social studies class, and I went back in the class, Bloody, bruised, embarrassed, talked all this trash to Russell Wright, couldn't back any of it up. Been whipped by the vice principal, and I never will forget when I started walking back in the, to my seat, this group of girls led by Chichandra Henley, who was, at her, we called her Cha-Cha. She was the coolest girl in the school. And she had her little girl, her group over there, and all they could do was laugh at me when I came back in that class. And I thought, you know, I should have accepted myself <laughs> that I'm not a fighter. I mean, I, I wasn't tough like Russell was tough. But in sixth grade, I didn't literally think that because I hadn't read the book. I didn't know what I'm telling you tonight. That one of the keys in life, if you want to be popular and you want to be accepted, is you have to accept yourself. You just have to say, this is who I am. And so as I grew up, I was like you. I certainly wasn't perfect going through. I did play ball. I had some success there. But, you know, somewhere along the way, I just figured out it would probably be better for me not to try to be a fighter or a tough guy or, you know, acting all like that. Just be who you are. And when I got to be a senior in high school, 
I graduated, and they voted me the most friendly. And so I had, like, changed from the renegade here to a pretty nice guy. And so, but the point of that long story is that we have to accept ourselves even if, you know, other people don't know us or we feel unpopular or we don't measure up and, you know, always trying to assert ourselves. We just accept ourselves for who we are. Now, back to the outline because some of the stuff I want to give you tonight I think is very helpful. And I'm going to scoot through this because I don't think most of this needs a lot of comment, although, as you know, I will make some comments. What, what accepting yourself doesn't mean? What, what does it not mean to accept yourself? I don't want to be unclear on this. First of all, it doesn't mean accepting your continued sinning. It doesn't mean accepting your continued sinning. And so if you have some sin in your life, whatever it might be, you can't just say, well, that's just who I am. I just am a hothead. I just lose my temper. I just say it how it is. I just tell people what I think no matter how it makes them feel. And I just have accepted that's who I am. Well, there are a lot of people who, have, who do that. They are rude. They're obnoxious. Their words are cutting. And yet in their minds, hey, it's just me. That's just who I am. I've accepted myself. And if you want to be in a relationship with me, you have to accept me for who I am. Well, that's not what we mean when we say that we're to accept ourselves. It doesn't mean that you accept your continuing sinning. That'd be hard. That, would be, that would go against everything we read in Scripture. Number two, it doesn't mean accepting your spiritual progress as final. It doesn't mean that you accept your spiritual progress as final. So it, it doesn't mean you say, well, you know, you know, I don't know all the Bible, but I know as much as I need to know. I know enough. I know enough. No. It doesn't mean that you say, well, you know what? I'm as close, as God as I need, as close to God as I need to be. No, you don't accept where you are as final. What did Jesus say? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so all of us should have in our hearts a hunger and a desire to know God better, to grow in our relationship with Him, to be better Christians, to be holier Christians, to be a better example, more loving, more kind. You don't just accept, you know, this is who I am and this is where I am and I just have to accept myself. That's not what we mean. The third thing it doesn't mean to accept yourself, it doesn't mean that you accept your present situation is final. You don't accept your present situation is final. Some of you tonight may be in a very difficult situation. You may be in a financial situation that is horrible. You may be in a work situation that is, that is, that is desperate or that is not even healthy for you to be in. It doesn't mean that you say, okay, here's where I am in life, and here's where I'm working, and here's how much money I have, and, all the, and so I'm going to be here forever. No, you don't accept that. That's not what it means to accept yourself. I was listening or reading about a football player who was a very successful NFL player, and is in the Hall of Fame now. And he was telling that when he was a young man growing up in South Florida, that his family was so poor that they could not even afford milk for their cereal. And so at breakfast, when the mother poured the cereal in the bowls, she filled the bowls up with water. And he said he grew up eating cereal with water. And he was on up in years before he had ever even tasted milk. Well, at a young age, that, young, that fella decided that he was going to do everything he could to make us be successful, 
make a living for himself, but not only that, to pay his mother back for how she had raised the kids. And I'm sure after he hit it big in the NFL, he bought her houses and cars and whatever else she wanted. But the point there is a good point. Just because now you say, John, to use that analogy, I'm pouring the water in the cereal, as it were. Now, hopefully it's not literally that bad. But, uh, in fact, if it's literally that bad, we would want to help you by giving you a a gift card from the church to H-E-B. Any member of our church going through something like that, we want to help you any way we can. Uh, But the point is, if you're going through those dire straits, don't accept that you're always going to be putting uh, water on cereal. You don't, that's not what it means to accept yourself. You say, well, what does it mean to accept yourself? Well, it means this, and Dr. Kendall had some really good insights. He had many more than I'm able to share tonight, but some of the ones he shared I thought were so very good. Number one, it means accepting your family situation. Accepting your family situation. You may have been raised in a home where there was strife and tension and yelling and even violence and anger and no love. And maybe your parents even said to you, you're an accident. We never intended to have you. I know people who've heard parents say that. And I want to just say, if there would be one person here tonight who ever heard their parents say, you were an accident. Listen to me. You may have been an accident to your parents, but you were not an accident to God. And that's what David was saying here in this psalm. He said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Now, this is a very touchy subject, and I'm probably not the one most qualified to speak on it because I was blessed to grow up not in a perfect home. None of our homes are perfect, but in a loving home. I never questioned my parents' love. I never questioned uh, that they were glad I was a part of their family. I mean, I, I'm very secure in all those relationships. And so, but some of you, you grew up with maybe a father or a mother who wasn't in the home, and you felt rejected and you felt unloved, or whatever the case may be. And but the, one of the things Dr. Kendall made a big issue of this. He said, even though those situations are tragic. And so terribly sad. And sometimes can just be even things happening that would be of a criminal nature in the home. But even then, we have to accept the fact that we came from the mother and father that God intended for us to have. That doesn't mean that God approves of of any actions that they would have done or thing that they would have said. That's not what I'm saying at all. It's not what Dr. Kendall is saying. But what we are saying is that in order to fully accept yourself and to feel good about yourself, you have to accept your family situation. In other words, it is what it is. Or it was what it was. I'm thinking of one Christian leader now. And she, in her testimony, shares how when she was a young girl, she was molested by her father. That's horrible. That's illegal. I mean, you can't... So that, That's just a worst-case scenario. And she talks about how the many years she had to go through counseling and trying all that, that problems that that caused her in her life. And yet now she's out on the other end of life being used in a remarkable way by God... And she has come to accept, not that God caused that, not that, never, not that God wanted that, but in her life, God allowed her to be born to that man and to her mother. 
And so whatever your family situation, it has not only to do with our family of origin, but it has to do uh, with today, with here and now. I'm preaching this sermon tonight uh, to some whose family situation is less than ideal. It is less than easy. You may have children who have rebelled or are rebelling against God. You may have grandchildren who are not walking with God. That's your family situation. Now, when I say you accept your family situation, I don't mean you accept that's just God's will for your... No, sin is never God's will for any of us. But you accept that you're doing everything within your power to influence your children and your grandchildren to go God's way, but at the end of the day, you can't control the actions of another person. And so, does it, when you say you accept your family situation, does it mean you approve of it? Does it mean you like it? But you have to say, God, you have given me a free will. You've given my children, grandchildren a free will. I don't approve of what they're doing. You don't approve of what they're doing. I don't like what they're doing. God, when I say I accept it, I don't mean that I But, God, what can I do about it? I mean, I can pray for them. I can continue to try to encourage them and minister to them and point them on the right way. But what I'm saying is, and maybe I'm not even using the right words, you have to, on one level or another, accept those things you cannot change. The old serenity prayer uh, comes in handy here. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Now, this is a touchy issue, but I've learned this in life. God holds us responsible for everything we can control. In other words, if there's something in John Redmond's life over which I have control, God expects me to control it. And for me to sit back and say, well, God, you're in control, and it is what it is, and I just accept it, God says back to me, I am in control, but I've given you a free will, and I've told you what to do, what to change, and you're refusing to change it. And so you can't use the sovereignty of God as an excuse to live in sin and just say, well, God's in control, and I have to just accept my whatever the situation is. No, God holds us responsible for everything we can control. But listen very carefully. Listen and say amen. I kind of snuck that in. So are you listening? Say amen. God doesn't hold us responsible for anything that we can't control. If there's something in your life, a a rebellious child, a rebellious grandchild, an impossible supervisor at work, a co-worker that is just pushing your buttons, listen, you can't control that. One of the causes of frustration, one of the big causes of frustration in people's lives is they try to control things that are out of their control. And so you just have to accept it. I think about people here tonight. I'm looking. I know, I know so many of your stories personally. You have uh, lost a spouse. Maybe your spouse died, and you were married for all these many years, and now your spouse has died. And so how does this apply to you? Well, when I said you have to accept your family situation, you didn't immediately start thinking about your parents or your children or your grandchildren. You started thinking about the fact that your spouse has preceded you to heaven. And here you are after being with a spouse or maybe it was a divorce and how painful uh, that is. I've been through that and I've talked about that in the past. Extremely painful situation. Well, 
What does it mean to accept? It means there does come a point in our lives where we have to say, you know, God, here is the situation. It is what it is. I wish it wasn't what it is, but it is. And so, God, as best I can, I have to accept it or else I live my whole life in frustration trying to change things and control things over which I have no control. And so I really think what, I, what I've said earlier applies to, to this situation, this most tedious and delicate of situations. In life, if there's anything that you can control, by, and I, don't, I never say this disrespectfully, for your sake and for God's sake, do something about it. But if it's something that you and God both know, is out of your control, you can't do anything about it. I think at some point, in order to accept yourself and to be comfortable in your own skin, you're going to just have to say, God, I just accept this situation. It is what it is. It's not what I wish it was, but it is what it is. And so, God, I accept that, and I move on in my life as best as I can. Now, the second thing it means to accept yourself, not only do we accept our family situation, maybe we're single, we thought we would be married, maybe we're widowed or widowed, we thought our spouse would still be here, but it is what it is. The second thing it means to accept ourselves, it means accepting the bad things you have been through in life. Accepting the bad things that you have been through in life as something that God allowed for a purpose. Something God allowed for a purpose. And so we have all been through difficult times, challenging times, hard and painful things. And we don't, you know, I don't know about you, anytime anything difficult comes into my life, I try to change it. I mean, I want it, I want, I would rather have it easy than hard. But sometimes in life we go through hard things. And what I'm saying is, if we do believe that God's in control, and sometimes we go through something hard in life. I mean, if you just got diagnosed with cancer or today you lost your job, it's not like you can go home tonight and fix that. I mean, that is something God... But, but notice what I'm saying here. You accept that God allowed that into your life for a purpose. Now, I don't know what that does for you. That completely relaxes me. Because I say, you know, God, here's where, I've, here's where I am. Here's what I've been through. And God, I accept it that you have a purpose for this. And, I, you know, I tell a lot of personal things, but some, I don't ever want to overdo it. But when I was diagnosed with that malignant tumor last June, this was the thing that I just held on to and said, God, you're in control. You have a purpose for my life. To, to digress a little bit and tell you something, uh, I was diagnosed with that tumor the day after my 20th anniversary here at First Baptist. And on the night of the service of my anniversary, I had, I had prepared a bookmark to give to everybody. And it, the bookmark said, the three greatest lessons I've ever learned in life. And the first one says, I, or the, the, I think the first one, I should have brought it in here. The first one says, peace is a result of trusting Jesus. That's the greatest lesson I've ever learned. The second one said, there's a purpose for every problem. And that night, I preached this sermon. I, I went down those three points. And the third one, I'm not getting into tonight. But I preached through those points. 
And it's interesting, the weekend before my anniversary service, I had those bookmarks in my car, you know, where you put your cup, your, your coffee cup or whatever. I had a, a couple of bookmarks in my car. And the next morning when I was at the ER, I was thinking to myself, what I was preaching last night, I'm having to live now. Peace is a result of trusting Jesus. There's a purpose, or I think I, the way I said it, every problem has a purpose. Well, here we are, 15, 16 months later, you get in my car tonight, would you believe I still have those bookmarks? And I look at them every day. And they're a reminder of me that what I'm up, when I'm up here sharing this, look, look, this is not my job. I mean, it is my job. This is my life. And so I don't ever want to preach something to you that I'm not trying to live in my own life. And so what I'm saying to you tonight is, Whatever you've been through, you have to accept that God allowed that for a purpose. And if you really believe there's a purpose behind every problem, you're going to be okay. And then the third thing, and I wish we could just go into it more tonight. It means accepting God's forgiveness for the sins that you have committed. In other words, we've all sinned. And so if we're going to accept ourselves and be comfortable in our own shoes and be happy and joyful and, you know, we're, we're okay, we're going to have to accept God's forgiveness for the sins that He's forgiven us of. John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, one day he was talking to another hymn writer and he said to that other hymn, because John Newton had been a slave trader, he had been a, a vile and wicked man before he got saved. But John Newton said to his friend one day, he said, you know, this is one of the great quotes of Christian history. He said, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be. But thank God, I'm not what I used to be. He had accepted God's forgiveness for all those vile and wicked and evil things that he had done in his life. And so, if we would accept ourselves, you take those three things that I just gave you home tonight, and you meditate on that. And I think what you're going to find is you're becoming more comfortable in your own skin, you know? And you're going to be able, out of that confidence, to better lead and influence others.